0: Today Dennis and I go into some deep topics that you will not hear him speak about on just any occasion, such as, would Dennis ever do an ayahuasca ceremony in space? And what does he think about Elon Musk's Mars mission and making humans an interplanetary society? We talk about how his brother Terrence's death affected his own view of life and death and spirituality. We talk about what Dennis was doing in 1985 use your imagination because Dennis wasn't just sitting around in 1985 let me tell you we talked for over two hours or a little around two hours so I'm not going to summarize it all for you here but I will tell you that this was an epic conversation and Dennis is an epic man so I'm very very pleased to present this conversation to you coming your way right now welcome to the daniel cleland podcast i am daniel cleland today i have the privilege sitting down with dr dennis mckenna phd dennis is the principal founder of the mckenna academy and a retreat advisor at Soltara healing center he has conducted research in ethnopharmacology for over 40 years he is a founding member Founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and was a key investigator on the Halaska Project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. He's the younger brother of the late and great Terrence McKenna. From 2000 to 2017, he taught courses on ethnopharmacology and plants and human affairs as an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. My friend, Brian Rose calls the McKenna brothers the OGs of the modern psychedelic movement. Some say their early work in South America is largely responsible for the migration of psilocybe mushrooms and ayahuasca into modern Western society. Dennis is a prominent ethnopharmacologist, author and psychedelic expert, but I prefer to call him a friend, a mentor and a business associate. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Dennis McKenna welcome sir
1: thank you thank you Dan it's <laughs> a pleasure to be here nice to see you again it's been a while
0: yes it has been a while it's been too long how long has it been
1: I don't even want to think of it pre-covid certainly I guess so except I guess for last the, November the occasional text message so are you in <laughs> uh, are you at Solterra now
0: uh, we're close. Yeah. Uh, we just actually moved. Um, we moved our studio over uh, down the road uh-huh. because, uh, because of course we're getting ready for our November 1st opening reopening post COVID right. at Sultara. So, um, so we just moved house today. Uh, Melissa and I are hanging out at this, this offsite residence just cause there's not enough space at Sultara. Um, But yeah, we've been here. I haven't left Costa Rica since February, if you can believe it. So Dennis, how are things? How have you been? We haven't uh, talked since, or we haven't seen each other since November of last year. We've been in touch a little bit, but uh, you've been living up in abbotsford british columbia you've you moved there a while ago you've been there throughout the whole past year or so 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 how are things man
1: well we we moved up here in uh, march of 2019 as you know and and uh, so far everything here is fine uh you know considering the circumstances like everybody else where impacted by COVID. We've been more or less uh not exactly strictly in isolation, but trying to stay home a lot, which is kind of the normal because that's what I do anyway when I'm not traveling. Uh you know, I'm I'm down in my basement office working online, doing a lot more Zoom calls these days, uh and just waiting to see what happens you know uh of course all of our plans for travel have just been spiked you know we we were gonna have at least three maybe four retreats in the sacred valley last summer that didn't happen and you know i uh i know you're reopening i guess the first of november and you know good luck with that i hope everything goes well you know uh Uh, so I, I guess, you know, this is the new normal. I mean, it doesn't feel very normal, but here we are. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, sadly, sadly. Yeah. I don't know. You know, here in Costa Rica, actually, um, people have very quickly returned to their, normal lifestyles. I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the, lockdown in the beginning was very, very tense because I think the Costa Rican people and the government really got spooked really early on in the, in the course of the virus. And I think when, I mean, just they, they locked everything down when there was just one case in Costa Rica, like it was immediate and decisive and, There was vehicular restrictions. There was nationwide curfews. There were closed borders, uh, closed workplaces, all bars and restaurants closed, all hotels closed, all beaches closed. Every beach was closed. Every national park was closed. I mean, it was all-encompassing. And that's how it went for the first, like, two or three months anyways, from March 15th or so until about, uh, geez, it must've been, I think in July when they started to open up a bit, a little bit June or July when they started to, to dial back a little bit. But, um, and, and, and during that whole time of just extreme lockdown, there were basically no cases, like no cases, very few deaths. It was, you know, maybe 20 cases per day, uh, And, you know, very few deaths, um, like, or none at all for for a couple of months. But then, and and, and there was this kind of overarching, this overhanging sense of kind of fear. But then, as soon as the government started peeling back the restrictions here, man, everybody's hitting the beach. Like, the the roads are packed. The hotels are packed. Like, the traffic is insane, right? It's like... (laughs) people did not forget how to live their lives in Costa Rica. That's for sure. So I wonder, you know, I wonder if it is the really the new normal or if like, you know, a vaccine comes out. I mean, I think the North American societies are a little bit more, uh, you know, waiting for a vaccine, but um, I wonder if like when things kind of slow down a little bit, if people just six months later, everybody just forgets about it.
1: What's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, this is, this is just what we have to deal with. I, how, how is, uh, how are things in Peru? What, what do you, what you hearing out of there? I've heard it was, uh, you know, dying off a little bit and now it's coming back. Is that the report that you get?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we have not been able to fly to Peru, uh, since, um, You know, since March. Right. We've had uh, we've had healers who came up here from Peru, who they got they had a repatriation flight in September, but uh, we had a couple, uh, two healers who are working with us in November, December, who uh, we had them stay here. They didn't fly back to Peru. So they've been here throughout the whole pandemic and they're just going to stay on and work november and december until there are flights back to peru currently there are no flights down to peru from costa rica and i think they've opened up flights to a few different countries like uh usa brazil mexico and uh, maybe spain i think yeah um and you know i've got obviously lots of connections down in peru as do all of us who work at soltara and i can tell you everybody from soltara all of our staff you know, they're really itching to get back there. They want to buy Mapacho and Mambe and see the people they care about down there and, and uh, go do some plant diets and everything. But so far, we haven't been able to get down there, and it's definitely not easy. Um, one of my uh, logistical assistants in Lima, a taxi driver there who helps us out with various different things in Lima, uh, he tells me that the airport's dead right now he usually picks people up and takes them downtown from the airport and vice versa. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, uh, he says it's pretty dead. there, not a lot of work. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, they're, they're trying to open up. And from what I've heard, international flights in October are going to be, uh, picking up a little bit October, November, December, but who knows? The thing about Peru is that, um, it's a bit of a complicated country to manage, right? There are all these different like eco zones, and and like they're separated by the mountains and by jungle, and right. it's not it's not a very wealthy country in terms of economic wealth, right? A lot of natural wealth, but economic wealth not so much. So the medical system isn't as uh, let's call it efficient and uh, advanced as what you might find in like Canada or USA or even Costa Rica and Costa Rica has done really well because the medical system here is, is very efficient and very, very developed, mm-hmm. well-developed. It's almost a Western country, like it's almost a first world country in that regard.
1: Yeah. It's, it's as good as you could hope for. I think the medical system there, it's uh you're you're lucky that way they and they have probably a pretty strong public health presence so so that's good i guess yeah yeah so uh
0: did you did you end up bringing a beer to the call excuse me did you end up bringing a beer to the call like we discussed yesterday
1: no i didn't i'm still on my coffee oh okay it's you know it's still breakfast time or it's, it's lunchtime actually. No, I forgot <laughs> to bring a beer. Sorry.
0: All right. Well, if, if you don't mind um, I've been saving uh, this, this bottle of rum for my birthday. It's a uh, 1985. Wow. Ron, Ron Centenario. It's a uh, Costa Rican rum. And uh, you know, I've been, uh, I've been, religiously on a zero alcohol diet from uh from monday to friday for the past several months and uh friday's my cheat day so you know i have a theory that if you're going to be strict about your personal rules and regulations you know when you have a cheat day you should use it because you know yeah what good is what good is being strict on all the other days if you can't so if you don't mind, Dennis, you know we oh, we discussed yesterday. That, why would I mind? Okay, no. good, good. So <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna um, sip on a little bit of rum during so our call.
1: Is uh, is today your birthday?
0: Sorry. Tuesday is my birthday, but of course Tuesday falls on a Monday to Friday, so I won't be able to consume any alcohol on well, uh, Tuesday. So cheers and and cheers, cheers. And, and and what better.
1: What better time to have a sip of rum than with with a, a good friend? That, yeah, that goes a long way back.
0: Well, let's start there. What were you doing in 1985? Well, I know you were you were already at in it in
1: 1985. Uh, I was living in San Diego. I was doing my first postdoc after I got my PhD, and I was down in San Diego uh, doing this uh, really boring postdoc. Which was kind of a transition to n i h which I went to a couple of years later. I got my degree at u b c in nineteen eighty four and then I went down to the states to you know find a job, find a postdoc, find a gig at some point, and I ended up in san diego but the most the best thing that happened uh that year, the most interesting thing that happened was that I got invited to uh, a symposium that Eduardo Luna was organizing in Bogota in the summer of 85, the uh, uh, international Congress of the Americas or the Americanists, I guess it is, which is like a huge, you know, multi-country conference, all the new world countries and so on. They send delegates. It's kind of a big deal. And he was, carrying out a uh, he had organized a satellite symposium on ayahuasca and and they would not you know they wouldn't let him come into they wouldn't allow it to be discussed in the main you know venue but they permitted all these satellite symposia so so i went down uh, to meet eduardo down there and uh, i gave my presentation i just published my a few of my papers from my ayahuasca works, so I gave my presentation, and that's a whole other story that we don't really need to go into. But then after that, after that, Eduardo and I uh, uh, went to Peru together, and uh, incidentally at, at, the, at that Congress, uh, one of the other uh, presenters at, at Eduardo's uh, symposium was uh, Guillermo Arevalo, uh the chipebo guy and uh he he was there that was the first time I'd ever met him and that was before you know his proclivities came out he was still he was much younger obviously as we all were and was respectable it was like you know this young chipebo aspiring ethnobotanist and shaman and so on so so we hung out and uh at this conference and then Eduardo and I uh well the 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 funny part of it was so eduardo at that time was living uh, you know in florencia which is, is where he grew up right he came to bogota for the conference and then we visited florencia after that and he stayed there for a few weeks and i went on to a and so I, I met up with these uh two Iranian guys that I (laughs) didn't know anything about, but they'd approached me in San Diego and they wanted me to take them down and, you know, introduce them to ayahuasca or mushrooms or whatever was available. So I accepted because that was the way to finance the trip, you know. So they paid for my trip and so on. I went to Iquitos and uh, they were there. We were there a couple weeks and we did some ayahuasca, we did mushrooms. And then Eduardo uh, came, joined me later, uh, first in Pucallpa. Uh, he came to Pucallpa because at that time, uh, you know, after, after this Iquitos, Iquitos thing, I went to Pucallpa to reconnect with uh, Don Fidel Mosabite, who was a, uh, Kokama shaman who lived outside the uh, or outside Pucallpa, and uh, uh, so Eduardo came down for that and met uh, uh, Don Fidel, and uh, uh, he, he came to Pucallpa because Francisco Montes, who you may know. Ha, he now lives in the Quitos. He Francisco years later set up the uh uh Jardine Ethnobotanico Sachamama outside the Quitos. But at that time he was living in Pucalpa, where he's from and he he had collected a lot of plants for us, for me specifically, over the last couple of years, because eighty-five I had left uh, I had, the last time I'd been in Pucallpa was 81 and he'd been collecting and accumulating these plants, which we were going to export to Hawaii. And that's why Eduardo came. But the interesting and memorable thing about that was that, uh, in 81, I had connected with Pablo Amaringo. uh. Who was
0: the painter? The famous painter. Yeah,
1: the visionary painter. But he wasn't a visionary painter at that time, right? He was, he was nobody. He was, he was a teacher. He was an the an English. He taught English in the local high school, and this was eighty one. I'd I'd finished my uh, my field work. I was actually on the way back to Canada, but I'd stopped in Pucallpa. And uh, to, again, to see Don Fidel and, and to drink with him and so on. So I was just uh, passing through and I was in this little village. Uh, I think it was called uh, where Pablo lived. It's was called uh, Pueblo Hoven Sanchecero, or something like that. I was just having a beer in the bar and uh, this guy approached me, this little man, and said in... You know, quite adequate English. Can I buy you a beer? And I said, sure. And that was Paolo Amaringo. So we had a nice conversation, and uh, and and then he mentioned that he was the local English teacher and that he was also an amateur painter. So we went over to his house just across the street, and he showed me some of these paintings, which were all realistic not visionary, and not particularly good, you know? I mean, it was like I was polite. I said, no, this is very nice. But I wasn't particularly impressed. I was impressed with Pablo, you know, as just such a nice man. He pulled a bunch of his friends together, and we had a nice concert, uh, you know, impromptu concert on the day I was supposed to leave. So that was that... And then I went on to, uh, I went back to San Diego and, uh, well, no, that was, that was 81. I went back to Vancouver, but then in 85, I came back down when I was living in San Diego and I reconnected with him. Well, this time Eduardo was there. So I, I took Eduardo over to the house to introduce him. And of course, in this situation, with perfect Spanish you know which mine wasn't then and (laughs) a little better now but it wasn't very good then I couldn't really uh uh you know discuss anything in depth with Pablo it was you know just polite conversation but with Eduardo there we started interrogating him and uh and so
0: Eduardo's bilingual then Luis Eduardo Eduardo and Pablo
1: could have a conversation. And, and so Pablo told us his story, which was that, you know, he had been a shaman. He had been an ayahuascarol, and, but he had left, he had stopped doing it because he got into a shamanic battle with some brujos that were out to get him. So he figured, well, either I'm going to get killed or I'm going to have to kill somebody. So I'm just stepping out of the whole thing, you know, and that was the story he told us. And then, and said, well, uh, you know, something came up about how, do you remember anything about your visions, about your experiences? And Pablo said, Oh yes, I remember everything perfectly, you know, literally a memory. I mean, that's not what he used that." Not how he described it, but he said, "I remember all my visions in detail." And, and Eduardo, at that point, said, "Well, uh, you're a painter. Have you ever thought about trying to paint your visions?" You know, wow! And you could see the light bulb go on over his head because it's like it never had occurred to him.
0: An inflection point. An inflection point that would that would uh, place him smack dab. In the immortal eternal history of the ayahuasca scene of the of the next twenty years or so,
1: yeah, i'm I'm not hearing what you're saying very well. Uh, Just
0: saying that that was an inflection point in yeah,
1: his history absolutely. that was that was an inflection point, you know where Eduardo you know put this idea into his head and we we spent some more time with him that afternoon we came back the next morning and he had completed the first four paintings that he ever made. And he gave each of us two of these paintings, which I still have. And, uh, and that was the beginning of his career. So, so he started becoming extremely prolific with these visionary paintings and, and Eduardo started working with him to publicize them, to help, find buyers for them he organized uh, i think uh, an exhibition in la and an exhibition in helsinki and then pablo was you know on his way toward fame and, uh, and fortune basically uh and so that was the beginning of it right there and that was that was kind of an interesting uh yeah it was i would call it an inflection point because you know the influence that his paintings have had on the whole sort of emergence of ayahuasca into the global consciousness uh that was kind of an important year in that in that sense in that it started this whole thing and then uh uh you know eduardo uh stayed with me and then we came back to san diego together and we had all these plants live plants that uh francisco montes had collected for us so
0: ayahuasca plants
1: all kinds of plants but yeah ayahuasca and chacruna and and many other of the admixture plants and that was part of the uh that and the plants i collected in 81 were really the the seed of botanical dimensions you know so that existed we got them out to hawaii and uh And that they are there now, you know, so there were basically two uh, periods when I brought plants out to Hawaii. The first was in 1981 after I'd finished my collections. And then this was the second sort of group that that came. See
0: that? That just absolutely blows my mind that literally the year I was born, which is almost 40 years ago, like I'm turning 39 on Tuesday, man.
1: You're such a young man.
0: (laughs) Oh, right. Right. But the year I was born, you were down in South America collecting psychedelic plants and basically proliferating them around the world. Like, (laughs) so, uh, like, okay. So a couple of years ago, uh, I released a documentary that you were featured in, called "The Plant Teacher." Right, it has an interview with you, which is amazing. And uh, and I recall, like I was I was already in Costa Rica when we released that. And I recall one night, like after after we had just released it, I was uh, I was watching it uh, with my uh, my Costa Rican girlfriend, and I'm watching your interview, and I like. I start to well up. Like I start to tear up a little bit because I'm like, Jesus, man, when I, before I even started like here I am just building my second ayahuasca center here in Costa Rica. Right. Yeah. And before I even tried ayahuasca myself, this was years ago, like eight, you know, eight years previous to this point in time or whatever. Um, I was watching you on other people's documentaries mm-hmm. the d m t the spirit molecule and and uh i forget what the other one was uh the spirit plant or something like that no d
1: m t the spirit molecule.
0: That yeah. that one, and then there was another one that had Guillermo uh, Arevalo in it.
1: Vine uh, of the uh, Soul.
0: Vine of the Soul. Yeah, yeah. So I remember, like, like you know, and then you were involved in, in this reality sandwich website. So, like, I was just this, like, I had no idea about ayahuasca, and I start learning about it 10 years ago from you, and, you know, uh, actually, 10 years ago, in November of 2009, I had a big accident and I was in Australia. I fell off a cliff and like broke my legs and, and just massive damage and just really terrible uh, experience of my life. And I spent 40 days and nights in the hospital in Australia. And at that point, I was like, okay, I need to change my life. Like my life is just an absolute catastrophe. I was like, 28, 29 years old. Uh, I had nothing going for myself. I had a lot of, like, psycho- psychological problems. Well, I mean, I had outward life problems, and and I realized that that was all based in my own psychology, my own uh, my own uh, traumas from the past, and, and my own psychological uh, kind of uh, issues were contaminating my actions in life, and that was contaminating my outcome in life. And so I'm sitting in this hospital in 2009, 2010, just, like, it was kind of over the accident happened in in November of 2009. And I was in the hospital until, you know, January uh, of uh, 2010 and I'm in that hospital and I'm like, dude, my life literally could not get any worse than it is right now. (laughs) And, uh, and I'm like, I need to change something. Like I need to change what's going on in my mind because I couldn't get through a day without having these, you know, self-defeating self castigating uh thoughts that were just you know like just just uncertainty about who I was or what my capabilities were like just anything it was just a terrible terrible wreck and um and I from the hospital bed I was researching ayahuasca and I saw that you were doing a retreat at Chimbre in Peru in Puerto Maldonado in, uh, 2010 and like April or Mar- or May of that year. yeah, And, and so, you know, from the hospital bed, I'm like, I made an internal decision, like, okay, I'm going to do this. I, I I think I might want to try ayahuasca. I was terrified of it, but I thought, you know, um, I'm going to try it. And so, and, and I found this retreat at Chimbre. I was following, uh, the reality sandwich and Daniel Pinchbeck and all these guys back in the day who are kind of you know not so relevant now but they were back then when when all this was just getting started or I mean well obviously not for you but but for a lot of the wider population just getting started um and of course I uh I made an attempt to go to your retreat I um I, I quit Australia you know after about four months of recovery I quit Australia I, I made a decision to go back to Canada but along the way You know, I flew from Australia. I stopped in L.A. and I thought, okay, well, once from L.A., I'm going to fly down to Lima and go to Dennis McKenna's retreat. This is in 2010, right? Yeah. I didn't make a booking. I didn't make a reservation. I didn't pay any money. My, like, grand master plan was just to, like, show up and knock on the door and be like, hey, guys, could you please let me in? Um, And so I flew down to Lima and I, I made a bus trip up to Cusco, and I didn't make it any further than, Cus- than Cusco. I got robbed. My plan was to go from Cusco on the bus down to Puerto Maldonado, but I got robbed. I got sick. I had no money. I was recovering from like the opiate addiction from the accident. And like it was just, uh, I was just in a really bad form. Yeah. So I ended up flying back to Canada from uh, Cusco. And so I didn't actually get to your retreat, but I'm just telling this story. To give a context for like, so that was in 2010 and in 2017, I am watching a documentary that I made with you in it. And I'm at like the second ayahuasca healing center that I built in the past several years. And I just came to this realization like, holy shit, man, like this is this is legitimately crazy and i i like started to cry i'm like holy shit! i can't believe that dennis mckenna like i'm buddies with dennis mckenna he's in my film he's an advisor for Soltara. and like man life is just life is just crazy so all that being said you've been in this game for so long for so long as long as i've been alive you have been in this game So how mind-blowing is it to have been able to watch and participate in this whole, like, psychedelic renaissance basically since it began?
1: Well, you know, it's been interesting. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, the first thing I would say is you shouldn't regret not going to Chimbree because that whole thing turned out to be, you know, a real clusterfuck, if I could use that term. I mean, it just... I got sucked into that scene and uh, it pretty quickly became clear that, you know, this shaman they had, Montaludo, was, I wouldn't even say he was a brujo. I I, I think he was just a bad person, basically. And I, you know, I I had been to Shibri uh, once before, before they actually opened in 2009, this guy, Rob Velez, the New York Peruvian, but New York stockbroker and so on, wanted me to come down and see it And uh, while well, it was building. So I took, you know, most ridiculous trip you could imagine. I took a four-day trip to Puerto Maldonado. You know, I flew in. We did ayahuasca the first night. We did wachuma the second night, and I flew out the third night. You know, the fourth night. Anyway, that was I'm very glad that uh, you know. And then later in 2010, he had this grand opening, and by that time, I had really not. I'd become very disenchanted that I thought there was a lot of, you know, shenanigans going on and just bad stuff, but. And they, you know, I I had a huge falling out with Rob. You know, we had a, a a big fight, and I told Rob, you know, you keep this up, you're gonna kill somebody. Well, two years later, that prophecy came true. But I had long since abandoned them, and and just didn't. But anyway, we don't need to get into all that. But I've been involved with ayahuasca, I guess, really seriously since i went to peru in 1981 my my brother and his wife at the time went to pucallpa in 1976 and i was a graduate student in hawaii at the time and they they went to pucallpa and they're the ones that connected with don fidel uh, and then when i went In 81, that's why I went to Pucallpa, because I had a contact there to, you know, in the form of Don Fidel, who turned out to be really the real deal, you know, an excellent shaman and a good, a good man. And and he was very kind, you know, to me and my colleague, this other graduate student. I mean, we kind of, you know, stumble into his courtyard and. You know, no way to, you know, I mean, 85, you don't send the text. You don't, you know, <laughs> you don't use a phone. You just show up. Yeah. And we came to his courtyard and, and to his very humble house outside this village of Pueblo Hoven, uh Sanchezero that, uh, that Pablo uh, lived in. And long before I met Pablo and we just kind of showed up and said, you know, we're here we want you to teach you teach us everything you know about ayahuasca, you know. <laughs> In our broken Spanish. And he, he kinda looked at us and he kinda smiled and he said, Okay. <laughs> so so we ended up he was our main guy. That's really when I got started. We ended up we didn't stay with him, but we visited many times while we were there and took ayahuasca with him. And he was, you know, kind enough to prepare it for us and let us document all that. And, you know, we could play the whole ethnobotanist thing, took samples from him back to British Columbia to analyze. And, uh, you know, I really, really regretted that I never got back to him. Uh, I always figured there'll be times time to go back, and uh, I never did it. He must have been about 60 when I was when I was there, and then I would hear occasionally uh, that he was, you know, still doing fine and so on, and then I heard he passed away maybe in uh, around the late 90s or something. So I never got back there, but that's what got me started on ayahuasca was that and the graduate work, and then, you know, I got my degree and then I got another postdoc at NIH and uh, didn't really do anything with ayahuasca at NIH. We, I had intended to, but it didn't turn out that way. I ended up working on uh, some other aspect of, uh, of psychedelic hallucinogens. But then in uh, 19... Uh, Ninety-three, I organized this biomedical study of ayahuasca in in Brazil with the UDV. So that was kind of returning to to the study of it. And I've been involved in it in various aspects ever since and still am. I I have to say that, uh, you know, like for you, you know, ayahuasca was a tremendous gift for you. You know, it, you discovered it at a time in your life when everything was just falling apart. You know, and you were in a very it had
0: already fallen apart. Yeah, it, it wasn't even falling apart. apart. It 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 had fallen apart. It was rock bottom.
1: Yeah, it was rock bottom. Well, I I didn't discover it that way, but I, I have to say, you know, it's been a tremendous blessing for me, and 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 one of the benefits is. I mean, not only have I learned from ayahuasca, hopefully I've learned from it, uh, you know, and you're familiar with it. You know what it can teach you, what you can learn from it, which is nothing more than uh, a way to, you know, be a better person. But uh, I'm grateful to it not only for that, but also for the sort of... uh, places it's taken me you know geographically the people i have met because of ayahuasca and just this whole world you know has been i have you know sometimes i tell people you know the most interesting things that have happened in my life have been directly or indirectly because of ayahuasca so it's been a very uh it's been a great gift for me you know and a teacher not just from taking it, but also from the places and experiences I've had as a result of being passionate about it and encountering many people who feel the same, of which I would include you, certainly. I mean, you, uh, you know, you reached a, a a point of crisis in your life. You discovered ayahuasca and then you turned around and, you know, it, you know, it, it was not a casual relationship. You dedicated your life to it and look at what you've accomplished a tremendous amount, you know, and uh, I have a great deal of respect for you and the, and the challenges that you've, that you've overcome, you know, to create these retreat centers in Peru. And then that didn't work out. Well, I mean, it worked out, but it, it kind of ran its natural course. And then you went to Costa Rica and you started it up again. And then everything is good. And then COVID comes along. And, you know, so it's been hard. It's been very hard for you. Um, But you keep going. You know, that's... There's something to be very much admired in that, I think, you know.
0: Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. One, that means a lot to hear you say that. Uh, It really does. I I really... I mean, to hear you say that to me, uh, is, is, uh, is very, very, uh, sweet and meaningful. And I appreciate that. It's actually a story that we hear like all the time. I mean, we see this all the time. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, to think just like 10 years ago, it's, it's literally 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, I was completely completely, Decimated. And here 10 years later, I'm on the path, man. I'm like, I'm, I, I feel wonderful, not only about, you know, what we've accomplished and everything like that. Like, I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've done some, some pretty awesome things, but just in general, with like, man, the way I feel every day, being on the path, you know, being just, A productive member of society contributing to the well-being of other people as well through the work that we do is tremendously gratifying being able to support this movement you know and to and to like uh let's say help break down some of the some of the perceptual uh barriers and the legal barriers and the cultural barriers i'll actually get into some of the legal barriers in a second here kind of a new development um but to, to but to be working towards uh this movement to be providing a uh a, a place for people to come and have similar transformational experiences to what i've had and what many of us have had i mean most people who who work with us, Mm -hmm. right. You don't, you don't just like, you don't go to college for a degree in ayahuasca. Well, maybe, you know, that's becoming a little more normal, but the people who generally work in this field have had their own personal transformation with the medicine right? and then work, you know, work to, to provide that for other people and want to continue um, working in the field. I actually, uh, I actually don't drink ayahuasca very often anymore. Uh, You know, I, 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 I think that's actually a good thing. You know, some people criticize me because, oh, well, you run an ayahuasca retreat, but you don't drink ayahuasca all the time. And I'm thinking like, well, isn't ayahuasca supposed to work?
1: Like <laughs> it's supposed
0: to work, right? right, like, right. like it's, it's, a, it's supposed to help you get on the path and help you feel good and help you have good relationships and help you contribute in a positive way to the world. And I mean, Dude, I mean, just my the quality of my relationships is incredible. You know, the way I treat myself is incredible. I feel like I have uh, discipline when I want to. I feel like I have freedom when I want to. I never feel like I'm out of control. Um, you know, I I I know what nourishes me and my soul. You know, I I spend lots of time in nature. I feel like I've got a really great connection to the planet. Like living in Costa Rica you know, provides a great opportunity to do that. Just spending a lot of time watching wildlife, watching the, you know, smelling the air, swimming in the ocean, walking in the, in the forest, getting rained on, you know, like, like those things are really great. Um, And I continue to take on the maximum amount of challenge that I can in a healthy way. You know, I'm not obsessed. I'm not like a workaholic who's obsessed about achievement or something like that. But I'm also, I also recognize that I should push myself and contribute the maximum that I can in a healthy way. So, you know, I feel like ayahuasca has really, really helped me get to that into that groove where it's like, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a good groove. And, and, I don't need to keep drinking ayahuasca like every weekend, you know, or every month, because what am I, what am I doing that for? I've already, you know, it's like when, when you go into an ayahuasca ceremony, it's almost like a lecture, Mm -hmm. right? It's almost like a lecture and then you get assigned homework. Yeah. And then it's up to you to go and do the homework after, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, you're, you don't drink it that often. I don't drink it that often, Uh, but you know, and I've been sometimes criticized for that. And sometimes I feel like I should, but I'm kind of like you, you know, Uh, I mean, I think it was Alpert or, or uh, Ram Dass or somebody who said, once you get the message, hang up the phone." you know, exactly. I don't necessarily agree with that completely. I think that, uh, I think it's good to be able to, touch bases with ayahuasca once in a while
0: or maybe wait till the phone rings maybe
1: wait till exactly wait till the phone rings you got the message you've gone out you're doing all of this stuff you're directly influenced by ayahuasca to do it you know you're dedicated but man you're running a very complicated business you know you you cannot necessarily be taking ayahuasca three times a week that requires a lot of focus in itself so i don't uh i don't see any problem you just by the words you just said you you can it, it it what i get from that is you've internalized the message and you're carrying out the program and you always have the option to go back and take ayahuasca once in a while and that's kind of the the place I've gotten to with it as well, you know, it's there and I'll certainly, uh, you know, I, I cherish it. I, I value it, but I don't necessarily have to take it all the time. You know, I'll take it when the when the opportunities are right, you know, and I think I shared with you earlier, a little bit earlier that I, I had come to a place where I was feeling like, you know, like I was getting the message from my that, wasn't getting these big revelations and all that. And uh I was sort of saying, well, you know, maybe you have internalized the message. Maybe you don't need to drink all the time. I don't have I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't have uh you know, I, I don't really have ambitions to be an ayahuascaro. You know, I I'm not interested in pouring or dispensing or holding space my job is different you know i'm a speaker i'm an educator uh i'm good at talking about it you know but i leave it to professionals to organize the the, you know to hold the space and run the rituals they know more than i do And, and a lot of people have said well you know how come you don't do this and and i say well i don't really feel qualified i you know, I've only been involved with it for 30 years, you know. I don't, <laughs> I don't feel qualified. But uh, that's not my role. My role is to, you know, I'm a talker. I'm a teacher and a talker, okay? So that's what I do,
0: you know. Well, well, two two points on that. I mean, the ayahuasca ayahuasquero or healer, curandero or jaman, these roles do not just magically happen based on the amount of time that you have been taking ayahuasca or the amount of ceremonies that you've done or how much you know about ayahuasca from a a scientific perspective. Right. Um, Those things happen with very intentional and very profound study of the plants and very strict, very controlled plant diets and very focused training from other maestros or maestras who have decades of not just experience drinking, but experience working in that world and taking the plants and knowing themselves to such a very intimate degree that they can not only heal themselves, but help to heal others. And second, I think it's totally uh, acceptable that you know your role in this whole field. I mean, we all have our role in this field. We're all trying to support this field of work, right? And this movement. And I'm the exact same way. I know my role in this field. I know what I'm good at. I'm not trying to be good at things that I'm not good at. I'm yeah. just trying to do what I'm good at and play my role. And my role is entrepreneur. That's what I am, mm-hmm. you know? I, I, I have visions, I assemble teams, I motivate people. I execute, I get things done, and I am able to use, I would say, not to like toot my own horn, but an, an exceptional talent or skill at exactly what I do to help build the platform for other people who have put in that time and that effort and that uh, training to learn the actual technique of healing, which is its very own profession. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes those people who are very, very good at the healing work, they're not so good at entrepreneurship, right? Entrepreneurship is another thing that is a profession and a, and a, and a skill set and a talent that takes a lot of time and effort and trial and error and failures and restarts to really get good at. So working together, you know, that's what I really love about Soltara is that our team it's like we have the navy seals but everybody it's like if you if you look at a battalion of the navy seals whatever they call it it's like you have one guy who's on the machine gun you have one guy who's on the radio you have one guy who's a medic you know you have one guy who's a sniper and like all these different roles within the battalion or the fire squad that result in one single deadly force but not everybody does everything it's like one person does one thing and it's all in the name of providing you know maximum effectiveness as a team
1: yeah i think i think exactly running a, a, a operation a retreat center like you do it is definitely a team effort and you need good people and that's you know you are you, you know you have this talent you know you are a leader and you attract good people uh you know and i admire you very much for that i think solterra is one of the best run retreat centers that i've ever had to do with and uh um, and and you know uh, I think a big part of that is that there is a, you know, there's an ethical basis to it. You know, you're not just, you're an entrepreneur, but you're not out to, you know, profits over everything else. You know, you realize that there's a deeper level to this mission that you're on. And, and so, you know, you're not like blinded by the, uh, the prospect of making money. There's probably easier ways to make money. You know, 100%. 100%. <laughs> Especially <laughs> 100%. based on, yeah. you know, as a result of this yet last year, which has been, you know, very, uh, very rough for you, but here you are. You're persisting. So I, I hope it comes out of that. I, I hope you get through that and Solterra you know, continues to be healthy and. We're all in a period of transformation here. I mean, I think 2020, you know, it's been a hell of a year. <laughs> I mean, it's it. I think we'll look back on 2020 as the year that, uh, well, basically the world ended. The world as we know it ended. And I think that what is going to unfold after that we're now living through that and uh, I think it's I think it's going to change a lot of things you know uh and and for one thing uh you know uh, unfortunately from from your point of view in terms of your business I think that uh people will not there won't be so much travel you know I mean that, and that's that's a problem when you're running a retreat center in an exotic country
0: it might seem that way, but we have seen an incredible response and an incredible enthusiasm to our uh opening in November. I mean, we have uh we have sold out weeks in November. We have people are are for this type of work. See, this is not just random travel. This is not just a random you know, all inclusive week in Mexico at a, a, you know, $600 a week resort or something like that. Like this is not just trying to get out of the country for lack of a better thing to do. People are guided to what we do, right? People, people want to come and and do what we offer, have these profound experiences, have therapeutic experiences. And especially now with all the trauma that has originated in 2020, right? I mean, this has been this has been a traumatic year. If you didn't have trauma before 2020, you certainly have trauma now that you have to deal with. Right? But but yeah, I mean, we were somewhat concerned, but but at the same time um I was always optimistic that we would recover and there were always uh, very, very positive signs that we would recover. And I, you know, I'm very, very excited and happy to say we did have many concerns, but, uh, you know, we, we placed a bet on November one, you know, back in July, we said, we're going to open November one. And, uh, you know, we're just hoping for all the other chips to fall, like, uh, you know, in, in time for that. So, They have. I mean, uh, Costa Rica announced that all flights to the United States are open as of November 1. Uh, Canada just announced that they're going to eliminate the mandatory 14-day quarantine upon return in exchange for uh, rapid testing. And, uh, oh, it looks like we just got a message that Peru and Costa Rica are opening up to each other. So, woohoo um and also um Costa Rica is eliminating the the 72-hour PCR test regulation before coming here so the the world is moving again and you know there's definitely a segment of the population that is more concerned about covid because the fact is that the risk profile is different for different people, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you know, like you, you know, like you you have a right to be very concerned about COVID because the risk profile is different for you yeah. than it is for a guy like me. And that's just based on age, basically, you know? Uh, and, and, and so some people are willing to take that chance. And not only we're willing to take that chance, but we're willing to overcome all of these other hurdles that were placed in the way by the governments like you know you have to somehow find a you have to somehow get a pcr test and get your results back within 72 hours of of checking of landing in costa rica yeah so you know that's like you can't you just can't do that everywhere like there are some places where you can't do that so you know we've had people who couldn't come they were booked but they couldn't come because of that um but like the fact that throughout November and December, when everything's just starting, the gears are starting to roll again. The fact that we have had a very, uh, a very encouraging response and we've got sold out weeks, like even, you know, you announced that you weren't able to come and visit us in December because of COVID concerns, obviously, which is totally justified. Um, and we also, uh, you know, uh, we lost Dorian for, uh, November as well. So just like, you know, within the last kind of month or six weeks, we found out we had a month of like basically no bookings between mid November and mid December, but they're filling up. Like it's like, it's, you know, I was worried, but they're filling up. And especially now that the flights are lifted. So, um, you know, in terms of us, like there are certainly some aspects of travel that are, not going to be as convenient and as you know random and spontaneous and cheap and inexpensive as there were in the past so there's definitely going to be some permanent uh impacts on the travel industry but i think fortunately um intentional travel purpose-driven travel like what like what we're you know what we're involved in it's not it's not just travel it's like you are coming to do something and it's like a pilgrimage right it's like a pilgrimage people are willing to walk around or over the mountain to get to the holy place right so yeah
1: well that's good i mean that's that's very good if you can i think that things are going to start opening up after the first of the year did I hear you say that Canada's about to lift their their quarantine re- requirements? Uh
0: Yeah. Yeah, I saw an article in the Toronto Sun yesterday uh sent to me by a friend of mine who um yeah, they 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 said that well the airlines and the airports and basically every Canadian travel related business has been begging the Canadian government to get rid of this mandatory quarantine, because it's not just like a suggestion, right? It's like when you return to Canada from another country, they threaten you with a five or $750,000 fine and jail time. And they literally force you to like, you can't even go outside for a walk around the block. It's like you are forced to stay in place for 14 days They call you every single day. Mm -hmm. They email you. If you you don't pick up the phone, they send somebody over to your house to make sure you're there. This sounds a lot like fascism to me. And it's really, really worries me. And, you know, I I don't want to get into the controversial opinions I may have about COVID and the government's response, but um, that is really, really extreme. And so because that's so extreme And I mean, you didn't come. That was one of the main reasons why you didn't come down. Even if you weren't super worried about COVID, you wanted to have Christmas with all of your friends, with your family, your daughters coming up there. Right. 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 So like you didn't want to have to go back and quarantine for 14 days and have the Canadian government breathing down your neck, making sure you're not talking to anybody, making sure you're not walking around the block, you know? Um, And so that was just basically decimating the Canadian travel operators uh business yeah, right? like air air canada westjet uh all the airports just ghost towns so they had been pleading with the canadian government for some time um and uh finally the the canadian government approved rapid testing that can be done in airports so um so people coming off the planes get tested in some facility then they get released as they test negative uh, if they test positive, they have to quarantine or, or something like that. But I believe they're doing a, uh, I believe they're doing a test run in either Toronto or Calgary, and then, uh, they're going to roll it out uh, nationwide if that, uh, if that works out well.
1: Well, so, so it is, yeah, I have, I mean, for one thing, I don't want to. Uh, you know have to quarantine when I come back and and then the other the other thing is you know I'm really invested in not getting COVID if I can avoid it because I have this you know I'm a geezer I'm an old guy I have this intuition that it's going to be hard on me so I'm trying to you know just avoid getting it but it looks like things are going to open up and you know there's there's travel I'd like to do. I'd like to come to your retreat in, you know, in, in uh, January, if that happens. Uh, and then I would need to get down to Peru pretty soon and see what's going on there. Not necessarily to do an event, but just to, to check it out. So how, how are you dealing with, uh, you know, you have groups coming. What do you do? Do you have a way to socially distance everybody or you just, you just, well, we're testing
0: a... everybody. So everybody at this point, um, is, is required to do a PCR test before they travel. Yeah. And we, we've also, we've also set up a, uh a system here with, uh, one of the, the best hosp probably the best hospital in Costa Rica, SEMA, um, to, uh, are we, we, we had to ask everybody to come in two days early so they could get a COVID test upon arrival as well. So as you know, everybody stays at the Wyndham out by the airport. And, um, so we have a room set up there. We have, we were working with the Wyndham and, um, and so a representative of the hospital will come out to the Wyndham on the, every Friday. So we start every retreat on Sundays. So every Friday at noon, we leave, we leave, the bus leaves at noon on Sunday. So every Friday at noon, we're doing PCR tests of the whole group. So we have the Wyndham people coming and doing a PCR test of the whole group and just making sure that everybody tests negative twice before they get on the bus and come here. Even if they're here, uh, we do have protocols on site to, um, to uh, improve sanitation and, you know, not super strict social distancing, but I mean, we're pretty much social social distance dis, distanced the majority of the time. For example, in the Maloka, everybody sits two meters apart, like the spacing between the mat. Yeah, we're all two meters a two meters apart. We're going to use disposable individual cups rather than the traditional kind of sharing the ceremonial cup, so you're not going to be you know drinking out of the same cup as everyone else will just increase spacing in the maloca where it wasn't already sufficient and the majority of the time you know people are outside so that has been stated uh mm-hmm. as as a factor that makes a difference and also you know um uv light has also been proven as a factor that that uh limits the lifespan of the virus right or mm-hmm. Um, so starting in November, you know, this is basically the beginning of sol- of summer in Costa Rica, and as you know, <laughs> as you're quite well aware, the summertime in Costa Rica is very sunny and very hot and very right. dry, especially where we are. So, right. um, so you know, this kind of all this outdoor space, and you know, you're not really com- you're not really packing anybody inside any really enclosed buildings. Even the restaurant is open air the, the star deck is open air. The Maloka is open air. Um, the only time people are ever really together in a room, uh, that in an enclosed room is when they're in their actual rooms together, you know, and, and we've also removed the quad suite. So we now only have two people maximum in a room. So all the rooms are now singles or doubles. Um, and in addition to that, and actually on the, on the legality aspect that, that I told you I would catch you up on uh, earlier was that, <clears throat> so uh, maybe a month or two ago, a month or so ago, I was contacted by the, uh, the local uh, ministry of health in the local uh, municipality that we operate in. And um, so they had been contacted by this, the, central federal minister of health the minister of health from the federal government had been reviewing soltara so Uh you know we're here we're in costa rica um we did we did kind of an exhaustive legal study before we opened this company and made sure that there were no laws prohibiting ayahuasca in costa rica although there's no real national patrimony like you have in peru right right so um so you know we we saw this as a gray area but no specific reason to fear for our legal uh safety right um so anyways we we uh we we started the company we built everything we started operating We were very honest on our website about what we were doing. We did not try to obscure what we were doing. We did not try to cover up what we are doing online. We tried to provide high quality educational resources for people on our website, even though that made me a little nervous because I knew we were broadcasting to the world. To anybody who really wanted to know what we're doing, they can look at our website and figure out exactly where we are and exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Right. Including the Costa Rican authorities. Of course. So, um, so they contacted me about a month ago, of course, you know, in the middle of COVID, um, after not operating for, uh, for six months. And, uh, they said, they showed me the file they had on us and they had literally analyzed all of our YouTube videos, all of our web content, uh, you know, everything, our personal, social profiles, everything like that. And they concluded that we're not breaking any laws. We are not illegal, but we're working with an alternative therapy. So what the government asked us to do is just formalize, even though we have been working with doctors uh, stateside, uh, actually one of whom is here right now, Uh, We've been working with doctors and psychologists stateside for the intake process to make sure we screen, you know, anybody who might become problematic with the medicine or for, for whom the medicine might be problematic. Right. And, um, and so, you know, all of our intake information is in English and everything like that. So the Costa Rican government reached out and basically just said, okay, you guys are not breaking any laws. You're cool. You can do this here. Um, but we would ask that you hire a Costa Rican doctor just to clear everybody, clear everybody before they go in there and before they leave and to translate your intake forms into Spanish. So we have, we basically just know uh, what's going on with everybody. So we've hired uh, a local Costa Rican doctor and officially we are basically permitted uh, by the federal government of Costa Rica to
1: off to operate. That's fantastic that's great you know uh i mean i think it's been forced upon you by covid to a certain extent but that's that's something you wanted anyway i mean you don't have to you don't have to be underground or, or anything anymore you can you know you've got the uh the federal government knows what's going on and they know that you're responsible and they You've hired this doctor, so now you can operate out in the open. And, and I think Solterra must be an exception. I mean, there are other retreat centers there that are operating. I I don't follow them. I don't know how well they're doing in these times. But you're gonna come up. Uh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna do fine. You know, you're gonna come up. The ship will be upright and. You're not gonna sink, you know, and you're going forward, so that's that's wonderful that's really
0: well, I attribute that to um the Navy seals I work with you know it's it's really um i I just play a small part in this whole grand scheme of things, but uh man, um the people in this orbit in the soltara orbit really humbled me, including yourself, you know um and, and all the people that, that help make everything happen. It's, it's absolutely incredible, but not to keep talking about Soltara. Um, so recently in April, we celebrated the life of Terrence McKenna because he passed in April of, of 2000, right? Your brother, your older brother, uh, we celebrated, uh, we celebrated his life and you guys did a, You guys did a a conference. You did some kind of, was it a symposium of something? I know Paul Stamets was involved.
1: Yeah, it was a series of things. It wasn't a one-day thing. But over the few, starting in April and over the next few weeks, we had uh, kind of an event every Sunday. So in a way, it was kind of like a podcast. But there were aspects of it that were live, and yeah, that was a great event. I I wish that uh, you know we we used Crowdcast for the web platform, which is not necessarily the best, but that that's what we used. we had we had ten thousand five hundred people registered for that thing at one point, and I I I wanted it to be free. It was free access. I didn't want to you know, be cashing in on Terrence's legacy necessarily. Now I kick myself if we'd asked everybody to kick in a couple bucks, you know, we would have That would have been
0: justifiable, man. Yeah, that would have been yeah, that would have I mean, been, been very, very well. Good.
1: But but I think we I think we created a lot of goodwill through that. So that was good. Uh and then we did this uh this other symposium just last weekend on symbiosis. Which was kind of a different thing, not exactly what I thought it would be, but it was okay, you know. And that was we did ask people to make a donation, and it turned out, uh, well, we didn't get ten thousand people, but we got like six hundred and fifty people to register, and uh, you know, and it mostly turned out to be about permaculture and and that sort of thing and it was fine it was it was not uh well uh you know a lot of people worked very hard we made these connections in australia with uh this uh symbiotic life this uh Anna, Anna Lisa uh Hordern, very well known in the permaculture area so it was a good symposium but i think also You know, as we do these, like when we did the thing in April, COVID was just really getting people's attention. And we were supposed to do that retreat or that event. We were going to do it in San Francisco with the San Francisco Psychedelic Society. So we we had to cancel that. And we thought, well, let's just go online. So we did. We were one of the first to do that. Now everybody's doing it. You know, so the competition yeah. space is a lot tighter and, for the
0: webinars.
1: Yeah, the webinars. I mean, any one weekend or any one day, you have a lot of webinars to choose from. Like this weekend, for example, the the plant spirit medicine, the the what is it, uh, spirit plant medicine conference in Vancouver is happening, and that's been an on that's been an actual physical conference for you know a good 10 years this is the first year they they've gone virtual you know so that's happening this weekend but there are three or four others that you could choose from so you know and i i spend so much time on zoom you know uh, i mean i, I mean, there's only
0: so much time you can spend on zoom right i mean, well, like like
1: it sucks the soul, Dan. I mean, (laughs) you just, you become a zombie or something. So I'm going to make a very brief, like 10 minute appearance at that conference. And I I may look in on one or two of the talks, but this symposium conference last last weekend, you know, uh, because I was, I, I had to be there like six hours a day for two straight days. I don't. I don't think we want to do that anymore. We're not going to do right, yeah. multi-day symposia. I think an afternoon is probably about as much as you can get away with. And uh, and also well, that's know, the podcast model is maybe better. You know, like we're doing because you can post. Yeah. Them, people can watch them whenever they want
0: that's my argument against the new normal is that people just don't want to be, you know, you might as well plug yourself into the matrix, right? Um, people don't want to be just sitting in front of a screen all day long. So that's why I think people will very easily forget the fear of, of, uh, of not being together. But, um, so how did like, how did, um, how did, Terence's passing affect your your view of life and death
1: well uh, <laughs> yeah, you mean twenty when it happened or twenty years later or both Yeah
0: I mean like how how uh how strange is it to lose a brother and not just not just a brother but such a prolific public figure who who left such a legacy
1: well it's it's very difficult you know it was difficult because we were very close and uh you know i still miss him uh a lot but then i and you
0: get reminded of him very often
1: yeah all the time you know i mean he he's achieved this sort of weird immortality you know in the sense that he's He's become a ghost of the internet, you know. He's all over YouTube. Uh he's very much there. He's still part of this conversation that really he's been having with his fan base since since the late eighties. And because he was so far ahead of his time, you know, you, you you look into some of his some of his uh talks that are posted on YouTube. I mean, it's very relevant to the times we're in right now. That it, it, it could have been recorded yesterday in terms of its relevance to what, what is going on now. So he's very much alive in that sense. And personally, to me, uh, you know, he's alive. I feel close to him. You know, I think if you have a loved one, a sibling or somebody like that, I think... I don't know if there's an afterlife, but I think that people live on in the memory of the people that, of their families, you know, and that's a certain kind of uh, survival after death. I mean, I, I, my mother died 50 years ago. She died in 1970. So what is it? More than 50 years ago. Yes. 50 years ago. I mean, I still miss her almost as much as Terrence in a certain way. So he's very much alive. It was really a you know, it was really a blow to lose him. And it's uh I think it's different, you know, when when you when somebody like that, who is you know, he was a minor celebrity at least, he touched a lot of people's lives and he was very much beloved you know and i think the community we were all made very sad when he, when he when he died you know and we lost somebody great uh but at the same time we have his legacy and his legacy lives on in the in the uh you know in the material that he left behind you know his books
0: well many people didn't even learn who Terrence was until after, you know, after he passed away. What's that? Like I said, many people, including myself, I didn't know who Terrence was until after he had passed away. Yeah. Right. But you're seeing all this content about him.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. And not so many people knew, uh, you know, and, and like a lot of the people that, uh, you know, I, I go to conferences or I interface with people who say, you know, your brother changed my life. Everything I've learned has been because of him and so on. And I'm like, what the hell you were in diapers when Terrence was at, at the peak of his career, you know, and now these young people are rediscovering it, you know, and I'm sort of a, and I, I, I don't know if I'm jealous exactly, but it's like, you know, he's more famous than I am. And he's been <laughs> dead for 20 goddamn years. How does that work? <laughs> you know, and here I am, I'm just kind of going along and trying to carry on the, well, not the legacy, you know, but I, I, I mean, I do my own thing and I, I get, I get recognized for it. So I guess that's good. You know? Uh, if if when I die, if I get a, an obituary in the New York Times like he does, I, I guess I'll be pretty happy. But uh, I'm not planning to check out anytime soon. Uh, so you know, but I'm sure he wasn't either. I mean, it's just you know, death is one of these things that comes on. I remember when he was when he was in his last stages of life. I said, well. Because I was spending lots of time with him, obviously, kind of a vigil. And there were times, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks when he couldn't talk, you know, but before that, we had conversations. And I said, Well, you know, how do you feel about this? You're, how do you feel about dying? And he said, Well, it's terribly inconvenient.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, so. That's so classic. Yeah. anyway
0: so so what what did how did okay you mentioned you weren't sure about life after death do you have any opinions on what happens when we die um did terrence have any opinions on what happens when we die um and you know do you think that uh Plants, animals, including humans, experience any ki- any type of life after death.
1: Well, I I, I don't know. I think that this where you have to invoke science in a certain way. And you know, one of the good things about science is you can always retreat into the suspended judgment. You know, you can say, like you say, well, you know, do we we survive death? Is there some kind of life after death? You know, and uh, the real, the honest answer is nobody knows. You you know, we we know that there are near-death experiences and people come back and they relate all those things that are typical of near-death experiences. But near-death experiences are not death. You know, they are an extreme state.
0: It could be a psychedelic state.
1: May, probably do involve the production of endogenous psychedelics and DMT. But it's definitely, you know, dying is probably one of the most stressful things that you can do, other than being born, and it's going to, it's going to, Internally, it's going to change your neurochemistry, and it may induce things like DMT, endogenous DMT, which tend to show up in states of high stress. You know, so near-death experience and the DMT experience are very similar, as you know, and they may actually involve similar neurochemistry. But can you can you extrapolate that? To death itself i don't know i I don't know you no know, the the scientific uh you know stance would be that you know consciousness does not survive after death, you know that it requires a nervous system and a physical support to to operate you know, but then maybe. It does. There's other reasons and certainly history and all that, religion and all that to indicate that maybe somehow consciousness is able to make that transition. You know? I, I think nobody really knows, you know. Uh
0: so have your have your views on organized religion changed over time?
1: Well, uh, I I don't know where you want to start counting from, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I don't have much use for organized religion as such. I, I, which is uh, different than the spiritual traditions or your own, uh, you know, spiritual practices. I think that organized religions are mainly about power and not so much about helping people, save their souls whatever that is i think a lot of it is about telling you what you're not supposed to do and more importantly what you're not supposed to think you know and and so it discourages you know i i am suspicious of any tradition or organization that tells you we have all the answers all you have to do is follow us accept the doctrine you can turn off your mind. You can stop wor- worrying about this stuff, and it'll all be good because just have faith. Well, I think faith uh, is an impediment to understanding, you know. And I think faith encourages you to stop asking questions. And I think when you stop asking questions, you you stop learning. I think we I think we have to learn to live with uncertainty. And and I think there's. Just certain things that we're, you know, we just are probably not going to know. You know, I, I don't think even when you die and after you die, I don't think it's all, It's like, even if you survive death in some way, it's not necessarily, okay, oh, now I get it. Oh, it was all about that. You know, <laughs> you may be just as confused after you die as before you die you know, and we're all, uh, in that sense, we're, uh, you know, we're we're curious monkeys, we're trying to understand the cosmos, we're trying to understand our place in it. And we're working with insufficient data, perpetually, you know, so it's okay to say, we don't have the answers, we don't know enough. You know, And, and I think that's something that, you know, I I, I think that, that that's a good thing to internalize that lesson. I think that science itself is a, uh, you know, sometimes a bit too arrogant. They forget. Scientists should remind themselves all the time how little we know. I mean, science understands a very tiny slice of reality, and it understands even that incompletely. So there's no place in science for arrogance because, you know, but you see a lot of arrogance in science, you know, and you see certain uh, individuals who say, well, yeah, well, science has this all figured out. We pretty much <laughs> we pretty much know what is going on. And my answer is no, you d- don't know shit. You don't right. know very much at all. And, of course, we have ayahuasca, which is always there to remind us you know to kind of slap us upside the head and don't don't get you know don't forget how little you know and uh just just keep the question open and and i think that's a good thing because i think i think uh you know it it keeps everything fluid you do not there is no final answer there. I I think you can't reach a conclusion about something and say, okay, we we understand this. We can wrap this up, put it on the shelf, and stop thinking about it. I mean, it doesn't work that way. So I think ayahuasca is a very good, uh, and all the psychedelics, but, but especially ayahuasca is a very good teacher for reminding us that, you know, our picture of reality is incomplete and uh and I'm okay with that. you know that means there's more to learn. And uh, I think learning if you like to learn things as I do, then that's very that's very satisfied. But you should you know, satisfaction comes in the process. It's not that you you know there's some answer out there that you finally reach, and you say, "Oh, this is it." I don't think it works that way.
0: Well, uh, we, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to touch on like kind of the science of psychedelics in a second, but you, you commented on us monkeys trying to understand our, our place in the cosmos and doing the best we can. What do you think of Elon Musk and SpaceX and his desire to go to Mars or rather to become an interplanetary species? and everything that everybody's working on now to you know get off this planet and get out amongst the stars and what do you think about all that
1: well i uh i think that uh, i think that i think that ultimately that may be our destiny you know i think that we do have this you know it's built into our Our genes in some ways or our human story we have this yearning to explore you know but to to go to the stars if you look at the just the physical challenges of that you know and the limitations on technology and so on just to get to the nearest star you know four light years away which is you know a long, long way when you think about it, and and if we were going to try and go there in a spaceship, given the propulsion technologies that you had, that we have, and so on, it would take at least five hundred years, you know, in, unless somehow we figure out faster than light. Problem. What
0: about Mars, though? You can do Mars. I mean, it's Mars is going to happen. Like they're going to do a Mars trip in 2024. They're going to send yeah,
1: unmanned the the inner solar system. Yes, I think we can probably uh, establish a, a presence in the in the inner solar system. But this is this is again this is a multi century challenge. I don't think it's going to happen probably in our lifetime. We may live to see people go to Mars, but they're not going to live there. We'll see people go to moon. You know, one of the things that bothers me in some way about the whole focus, when you talk about the space program, you're talking about Mars. We want to go to Mars. Why go to Mars? You know, why go from one gravity well to another? Go to a, a place that is, you know, there are no resources. There's no the water. There's... Why would you go to this place? What are you going to do there once you get there? I think it's it's far better to focus on, uh, let's get a permanent presence in space. You know, space, let's build these space colonies or whatever you want to call them, because that's where the energy is, that's where the material is. That's what we should be focusing on. You know, not necessarily... I mean, that that was the mistake we made with going to the moon. Okay, we came to the moon, got a bunch of rocks, brought them home. Now what? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like they're, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm very happy that we we went to the moon, but in some ways it was a political, uh, uh, you know, program rather than a scientific one. I think, you know, we will see what, what happens but i i think also i think that uh you know we have to realize that you know sure we can we can think about leaving the planet and so on but for the moment this is where we are you know as they say there is no planet b you know this is the one we gotta make this work you know and we're not making it work and that's that do you
0: think that calculating uh, like for example thinking about when we when when we look at terraforming Mars for example right we're looking at a planet completely objectively there are no politics on mars there are no red states and blue states there are no communist and democratic countries no but if we you know, get
1: there there will be all those things because we'll bring them with us.
0: but what, I, what i'm wondering though is like is there a transformative effect that 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 um, transmutes into a way of looking at this planet When we, when the scientific community and the global community starts looking at this other planet of like, oh, well, we would like to uh, take this planet and look at it as a complete, completely enclosed global system, Mm -hmm. right? It's like a global system. It's like it's one thing and you start looking at that planet like, well, how do you terraform this planet? How do you start to manipulate the systems of that planet to have the effect that is conducive to harbor life right if you start looking at that planet does it then start to calculate to people more people that will actually the same principles affect on this planet the same the, you know this this the same principles okay well this planet has an atmosphere that encompasses the entire planet right. this planet has you know the the forests that we have serve a function in generating that atmosphere the oceans that we have serve a function in the balance of the planet and the and the the rotation of the planet, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as it goes on like that. Whereas now, a lot of the uh, resistance to, let's call it, climate science or, or the scientific community that is that is forwarding these ideas of modeling climate and looking at the world as kind of this whole kind of interconnected system. And we, you know, obviously both have theories about the guy hypothesis and everything like that, but what's getting in the way right now is that people are still kind of locked into their, their position from a single country or a single state or a single city or a single region, not, and, and, and almost denying that what they're doing there has an impact on the entire global system, right? And and these kind of science deniers. I mean, I I I'm not trying to say that everything purported as science is word as gold or, or, or scientific, but you know, there are there are there's kind of a a variety of resistance out there to the the models, the climate models, et cetera, that have been put forward and the proposals to treat the planet like it is one system which it is you know rather than well this country's doing this thing and that country's doing right. that thing. You, you,
1: you've got to bring this global uh perspective into it you know saving the planet should be as you say a planetary effort all the nations all the people on earth should get all hands on deck to help save this planet because we've all gotta live there and going to mars might help or even putting colonies on the moon because it helps reintroduce that global perspective into it but i think before we can think about uh you know terraforming mars which is possible
0: we should terraform earth
1: yeah let's terraform earth so far and and we're already
0: like 90 percent of the way there what's that we're already like 90% of the way there. We've yeah, got a huge both- head start. All we have to do is optimize optimize the terraforming of Earth to be like just a garden paradise.
1: Exactly. And, and so far, our track record is not good. I mean, we should be terraforming Earth. That just, don't, that just amounts to, you know, making sure it works, making sure all the planetary systems work and stay into equilibrium we're busily undermining them dismantling them and and uh, so we have to get straight about that before we can go to a planet like Mars and, and screw it up maybe we should repair our own work own world first i think this is this is important but that said i'm, I'm not against uh uh you know uh terraforming mars but this is not this is You know, governments and institutions, this is a a long-term project. I mean, this is not something you can do in the next quarter. This is like a 500-year project before you would even be able to see much effect. Governments and institutions are not set up to work on that time frame. That's part of the problem. We can't look ahead that far. But I think, you know, that's... uh, you know, it, it it's it's possible, uh, and and again, I think one reason why we should look at getting this, uh, you know, this permanent presence in space, getting infrastructure in space in near Earth orbit by building things like space towers and space colonies and this sort of thing. For one thing, all the energy and material is there, the energy in form of in the form of solar energy and the materials in terms of asteroids, which are loaded with metals and, and carbon and all sorts of things. That's so if you try to lift all heavy industry off the surface of the planet, you know, and that takes a lot of pressure off the ecosystem. But that has to be a collective effort. It it can be done, but uh, what we don't have is the will to do it, to the will to, uh, you know, work collectively, in collaboration with other governments. We're too busy fighting everybody, you know, to actually right. say, look, you know, we're looking at if we're lucky, we're looking at thirty years. That's probably way too long. We're looking at a very short time frame before the Earth will essentially be uninhabitable or uninhabitable in great parts of it. I mean, this is known if, if, if the current trends continue. So there's still time, but there's less and less time all the time. A certain point you reach where these, these systems that keep things in equilibrium they are very resilient. They will tend to repair themselves, but at a certain point, if you push them too far, then they can't do it. You know, you reach a tipping point and they're not able to re reestablish themselves. And, and that's what we're getting very, very close to, you know? And so that's, that's where. So I've
0: got, I've got maybe a strange vision, a strange dream that uh I haven't really made public yet some of my some of my friends know what it is. I would like to be the first person to host an ayahuasca ceremony in space
1: to own own someone in space no
0: I w- to host an ayahuasca ceremony in space, a legit Shipibo <laughs> ayahuasca ceremony in space, so you were talking about like getting infrastructure going in space you know before we get to the red planet and everything i i mean that's already happening like there are people that are developing space hotels and with the launches getting more and more frequent this is literally within 5 or 10 years this is going to become an actual feasible thing to do so like kind of like my life mission my life mission is to be the first guy to set up an ayahuasca, a Shipbo ayahuasca ceremony in space. Are you with me? You gonna come?
1: I'm totally with you. I mean your your Yes your your idea uh is even crazier than mine. I, I didn't look for space necessarily, but one of my fantasies is to uh uh build a huge Zeppelin or somehow get a Zeppelin. This is this is my uh, ego-inflated bananas idea for the future of the McKenna Academy. It will be based on an enormous zeppelin that will cruise the world <laughs> and and have ayahuasca ceremonies. I, I have this vision of, you know, floating about 500 feet above the canopy of the jungle at dawn with Waira Zikaros sort of rolling out over the... Uh, over the landscape uh and really this is this you know this is well you know it's probably a fantasy but if somebody came along with enough money to, uh to build one of these things or or buy one it would be a great it would be like a floating campus for the academy and it could be uh you know a nexus for environmental activism and all kinds of act that you know you have that thing Jammed with telemetry and uh you know uh long distance cameras and all sorts of uh climate monitoring uh technology, and then you just use that essentially as a as a floating nexus point for uh you know putting out podcasts and and just all kinds of things of course some- I don't
0: think there's anything crazy about that idea. What's that? <laughs> There's nothing crazy about that idea at all. In fact, I think it's brilliant. Just don't fill the blimp with hydrogen gas.
1: <laughs> well, we uh, we have to find somebody with deep pockets and a big imagination. I, I don't know how you get to Elon Musk or someone like that, but that was, he he might dig something like that. But.
0: Well, if we keep talking about uh, you know doing ayahuasca in space, eventually we're going to need to contract elon and spacex to get us up there and uh so you know well that's my goal i mean i got massive respect for elon i uh i hope that someday we're going to be best friends i'm pretty confident that we will be so um you know i just have to keep talking about going up to space and doing ayahuasca in space and he, being the first he would, guy to do he that, would
1: so. probably get it he, i mean I'm, I'm sure he's been beyond the chrysanthemum a few times you know i think it's pretty pretty i've heard that psychedelic. i've heard yeah.
0: that through the grapevine yeah I but think, you know
1: i think so uh well I,
0: I so let's so let's end on the mckenna academy you touch on the mckenna academy you have a bunch of ideas you um uh, you know over the last couple of years uh that we've been working together you have you know i've heard you many times talk about your dreams and your visions with the McKenna Academy and now you are like executing on it the website looks great if it wasn't for COVID you'd be you'd be doing very well uh, with the retreats that you had organized that you would have been executing on and um, so how does it feel to be finally you know kind of executing on this big vision that you've had for all these years and uh, you know what what's going on?
1: Well, we're doing, uh, yeah, COVID has really caused us to change our plans, but but the plan still remains the same. You know, it's just the time frame has changed. We still would like to have a permanent place in the Sacred Valley or something like that where we could have these retreats and so on. Uh, but obviously we can't do that. I was hopeful that by, you know, this time next year, we would actually be further along with that and it may still be it may still happen you know i've made connections with a lot of people with with resources and they're interested in acquiring this place down there and for many of them uh you know a few million dollars is not such a huge such a huge uh amount so we'll just see what happens you know uh
0: what what was what would be then the you mentioned the UNAP project. Um what's uh what is there anything lastly you'd like to state about the McKenna Academy and where you're going or or how do people participate, how do people get in touch with you? Um what what's what what do you want to close on?
1: Just just visit the website. It's the McKenna dot academy and see what we're doing. We've got resources there, we've got advanced, we've got links to interesting things and uh you know we have plans for for events in the future and uh we're just trying to operate in this virtual environment as much as we can. We've always wanted to have a strong web presence and so COVID's kinda you know all of a sudden that becomes the priority but we're still hoping to be able to uh do retreats or or conferences or whatever, you know, in, not necessarily in, I mean, in South America, but also in other places. So it's, it's ongoing, Dan, we're just making it up as we go along, basically, but people can look at the website and uh, people with good ideas, we're, we want to hear from them, people with, uh, people able to uh, financially supported it uh, I guess one of the big uh, thresholds we've crossed recently is we've we've incorporated a 501 c3 in the states uh, originally we in, did that in Canada but then we decided to do uh, nonprofit in the states because it's easier to get give people tax deductions that way and we're just uh continuing and that's what we're doing
0: Good. Well, uh, you know, I'm very happy to see that your that your dream has come to fruition. Um, I absolutely support you, and will. I'm happy to help out in any way I can uh, with the McKenna Academy. Uh, I mean, it's just an absolutely incredible legacy that you and Terrence have created. I'm certainly, uh, you know, reaping some of the rewards of that legacy as our you know my whole team and and the people who come to see us um you've really really transformed the world in in many ways and uh well you know it's a real honor to have you come on the on the show and and have a a casual conversation with me so thank you so much
1: well thank you you're you're very kind i i think the world is transforming itself but you and i and people like us we're trying to nudge it along a little bit so uh it's very good i'm looking forward if if uh uh, i've been talking to melissa about maybe giving some zoom lectures to your next retreat group in november whenever it starts so i'm totally down for that we'll just keep the conversation going and see how it goes i can come back and do another podcast uh you know we lost some time with all the tech stuff but I'm, I'm happy to i'm really happy to be working with you Dan. well I'm, I'm uh you know i want to help you too as much as i can so we'll we'll leave it there
0: sure yeah no it's a real pleasure man thank you so much and uh the most important thing is that you stay safe you know get through this whole kind of health crisis get yourself vaccinated if that proves to be safe And then you're good to go. But, uh, yeah, the most important thing is that you stay safe. So um, just take care of yourself, man, and all the best. You too. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleland Podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, Please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued Amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently. 1-800-397-1730 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Sultara Healing Center. All kinds of great content, nonstop, coming out down the pike every day just for you. Thanks again so much for joining. I appreciate it beyond words and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting if you want to reach out to me there's a contact form on my website danielcleeland.com feel free to hit me up i read every email and try to respond to all of them thanks again much love to you and i hope we get to catch up soon
1: all the best